That's a, this is a good surprise. That's what it is. Because, because Betty dropped in to tell you something today, and I'm excited, and I'm going to give her this microphone, and she's going to come up here, and she's going to tell you about some exciting new things that are going on. And I'm going to get out of her way. Good morning, everyone. Um, as they were saying, hey to you, God bless you, and all that to the start, so um, God bless you. Uh, I'm going back, well, tomorrow I'm going to Dallas, and then Wednesday I'm going to Florida, see a friend went that night, and then Thursday I'll be in Haiti, and God willing. So um, there's three things that I'm working on right now. One is I'm trying to really learn Creole so I can understand it, and and toward that end, I found a, a, a guy over there that's supposed to be the head linguist in the country that has his own school there, and he lives in kind of the same area we're at. So I'm hoping that he can help me with that. So that's a praise report. Second thing is building the structure. Uh, just so, so many things that we've been not doing the best way we had. So we're going we're gonna to get a, an accountant over there, a certified accountant, to come over and help us do everything, just get everything right. And and just a lot of different things. I've, I've gotten a calendar online now, and I've gotten Trello task management, project management, things like that. And then i got a gal that lives really close to us that's coming over and, and does. she's going to do some fundraising for us. I call it fundraising instead of fundraising. And the th- third thing is that I'm wanting to start a study of the Gospel of Mark. And the vision that God's just given me has just been growing and growing because <clears throat> at the start... It was just, you know, to email my team the way I've been doing them. I send them leaderships every week, and I translate them into French. And that used to take me four hours. Now it takes me two hours. But now this study in the Gospel of Mark has gone, I mean, I'm spending like 25 hours a week on it already, and I haven't even started it. But they're just some things that the Haitians, and I've got this book called Just Seven Laws of the Learner. Have you read that book? That book is awesome. It's actually totally changed my way of teaching, you know, that you you look at how the learner looks instead of how you look. And and I, I'm thinking about what the Haitians need and what they get all the time from preachers is God's going to help us. God's going to help us. He's going to take care of us. And in their prayers, it's act for us, God, ajipunu. But some it's, it's not working. And so what else they need is they have a tremendous sense of shame. It's almost they almost need... That's almost worse than not having enough food is they feel so inferior. And we oftentimes make them feel inferior, come over there like we're the helpers and you're the helpies and you don't know anything and we're going to take care of you and, and deliver you and all that. So what they need the most of all is to know that they are worthwhile. So I'm, And they also um, they want to evangelize their people. They want to go out, but they've not been trained. So in this gospel, I've started getting into the research and I've got commentaries one of them's got greek in it which i don't even know greek and and all kind of materials that i'm working on and i'm finding out more and more in depth of what it will be and i think it's going to take me like 35 hours a week to do this so i'm not sure how soon that i you know if i start i don't want to stop in the middle and i'm thinking also about having pastors over there have small groups and using the internet um all, all kind of things that are just every day, every minute, it seems like God gives me some new idea of how we're going to do this. And so it may not start for even a few months, but um, it's it's my heart. I, I want to equip the saints in Haiti. That's kind of my, maybe what God brought me here on this earth for, because everything that I've done, you know, my doctors in mathematics, not theology. Actually, before I went uh, to the doctorate in mathematics, I thought about doing it in theology. 
I did think about that because I used to have all these books. Gary would say, good grief, you only have to listen to the sermon tomorrow. You don't have to preach it. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, it's my heart and I think it's worth giving up mathematics for. I think it's going to be a, a, something that's, it's just overwhelming me. So I ask for your prayers for me to have strength and for other things to get done. I have still a bunch of business from Gary yet and stuff like that that needs to get taken care of. Because once I start this, I want to be able to give 35 hours a week at it and to have it be what God wants it to be, um, to have the people in Haiti that are going to be the leaders of it. And I don't know where God's going to take this, but I'm, I'm excited. I've got the vision for it and... Um, so I, I ask for your prayers. Thank you so much. Yes, God. Yes, God. <coughs> yes, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I thank you, God, that the that the res the resources that she will she will get resources of of time and energy and finances and and staff and support that is equal to and exceeds the size of this vision that she has. Yes. I, I thank you, Lord, that, that you will make it clear to her that she's not doing this all by herself and that it's not all up to her and all on her shoulders. I thank you, Lord, for the team that you're bringing around her and the resources that are just coming from unexpected places and just when she needs them uh, to that she would see clearly that it's you who are moving this vision forward and it's not up to her. Thank you, Lord. Mm-hmm. Yes, God. Mm-hmm. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. <clears throat> and all of the people said, Amen. Amen. Yes, Lord, let it be done. Yes, Lord, let it be done. Yes. <laughs>
Okay. Tell Raymond that we, we send all our greetings back. God bless him. Okay, so um, let me see. I'm gonna, so, so, so somebody tell me what this is. It's a crooked line. Say it, say it, Randy. Randy got it. Randy got it exactly right. This is a buggy whip. No, no. Um, the, the buggy whip is one of the most commonly used metaphors for when you start talking about sales and marketing and business investment and product development and all that kind of stuff. It's a metaphor for how how easy it is for people to be stuck in old ideas and not realize that the world has moved on, the markets have moved on, business has moved on, and that people still want to, are still, you know, so the story goes like this. There was a time uh, when motor cars, uh, horseless carriages, um, you remember all about that, John, right? No, not really. <laughs> uh, so the, the horseless carriages came along, and uh, but all the transportation, the local transportation industry, was completely invested in buggies and wagons and horses. And one of the things that you really needed as part of that industry was the buggy whip. Um, uh, and the, there's a, a, it's a whole big study and story that I won't go into, but just basically that people held on too long investing in buggy whip factories because they didn't recognize that the world was moving on and the horse's carriage was never going to be a thing. Um, and, and so a lot of people lost a lot of money when the buggy whip factories finally went out of business uh, because they just <laughs> missed it. They just didn't, they didn't recognize that time, that the times were changing. So there's a little metaphor uh, that you could apply to anything, including spiritual life. Um, so keep that in mind, because we're going to, maybe it'll, maybe it'll come back before this is over with. So I, I just occasionally want to remind you that the overarching message for the entire book of Acts. It's very simple. When Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all across the world. You will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. How else can you get power? No other way. Uh, Can you make yourself powerful by your own... Uh, you talked about theology. Okay. Um, does theology itself make you powerful? Um, <clears throat> there, there, there's only one way uh, in the kingdom of God to receive power, and that's from God. Um, we look all sorts of, through all sorts of other ways to control uh, our situation, to make things happen for God. 
God doesn't want you to make anything happen for him. Turn around to somebody and just say, God doesn't want you to make anything happen for him. Chuck, God doesn't want you to make anything happen for him. All right. God, God wants to give you power so that he can make, he can make things happen through you, through us. But so we've, we've shifted this around, though, to this, to the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to tell what you've experienced everywhere you go with miraculous results. Miraculous results, that's the power part. Um, be my witnesses, that's the you will tell your story wherever you go part. Um, that's the way the kingdom of God is organically supposed to grow. That's the only way the true kingdom of God organically grows, even now today, is when believers, everywhere they go, tell their stories, the Holy Spirit shows up and people are connected to him. That's, that's the whole story. So that's just, I, I never want us to forget that. Now, you remember last week we talked about one of the Herods, because there are like a billion Herods, uh, but one of the Herods died and was eaten by worms, right? And everybody lived happily ever after. That's kind of what it said. Herod came out. He made a speech. The people said, you are, you are like a god. And, um, and Herod didn't stand up and say, wait, wait, I'm not God. There's only one God. I'm not him. He just kind of soaked it all in. A few weeks or a few months later, he died of something. And uh, in the book of Exodus, he was eaten by worms. <laughs> and, but then it says, and everybody lived happily ever after, it, that, the, that the kingdom of God continued to grow and the gospel spread exponentially. Uh, I left one little, there was a last verse from Acts chapter 12 last week that I didn't put in. The last verse of Acts chapter 12 um, doesn't really connect as much with the rest of that story as it does to the next story that starts in chapter 13. But, but here, is, here is the last verse now of, of Acts chapter 12. Um, after he died and was eaten by worms um, and the, the gospel was returning, then it says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And at this point you go, Hmm. Hmm. All right. Does anybody remember what this is referring to? Because this is referring to stuff that happened in like in chapter 11, um, which means it was like the beginning of June. Uh, does anybody re- remember the circumstances? That's right. There was a uh, there was a prophet named Agabus or something like that, Agabus. Or, but anyhow, there was a pop prophet in Jerusalem uh, who had a vision that there was going to be a famine coming and that it, the, the people in Jerusalem were going to suffer. And so the people in Antioch uh, leapt into action and said, we need to do something about this because Jerusalem, that's, that is ground zero, epicenter uh, for the church. That's where uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and, the, and the, a core central group of apostles is living in Jerusalem. That's where, where 
that's where the history started. That's the place. Uh, that's the, the motherland. That's, we, don't, we want to protect our... So they took up an offering. They gave it to Paul and Barnabas, who happened to be there. Uh, and they went and took the stuff to Jerusalem. And now... This little verse is dropped right in the middle of chapter 12. Now you're, and you're supposed to remember the rest of the story from a few pages back. Where, and you're supposed to say, okay, Barnabas and Saul returned to where? It says in parentheses, it's not there. They returned to Antioch from Jerusalem when they had filled, fulfilled their mission and dropped off the money. Uh, and they decided when they left Jerusalem to take along this kid who was called John, who was called Mark. Um, but anyway, he went. Now, this, the history and the connections are a little sketchy. It's, there, people have different opinions. But the assumption here is that Barnabas, that Barnabas' sister was Mark's mother. Um, and, and John Mark, who, who, if, who had been probably around, he was, his mother was kind of part of this inner circle here uh, in Jerusalem, and he had, he had seen a lot of stuff happen. Um, and so they thought, you know what, we, we need a gopher. Uh, or we need a helper. We need a cook and bottle washer. We need a something. We need somebody to help us with our bags or what we, whatever they need. So they invited him to go, and he went. And there'll be more to that story later. So that's the end of chapter 12, and now we're in chapter 13. And I just wanted to soak this in. First, we'll just read it all. Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. And then they named Barnabas, and Simeon, who was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Let's just stop right there. Um, this is like saying... And in there at Antioch, there was a baseball team and uh, made up of Willie Mays, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, um, Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris. Um, these, these are the guys who just happen to be sitting around as leaders of the church of Antioch. There's Barnabas. We already have met him a zillions of times. If it weren't for Barnabas, I'm convinced if it weren't for Barnabas, there wouldn't have ever been a church because he's the guy who rescued uh, Paul off the trash heap and got him back in ministry. Simeon, who was called Niger, um, otherwise known as, as Simon the, the Cyrene, who a lot of people are very sure was the man who was pulled out of the crowd to carry the cross of Jesus. Um, then I don't. Know, there's not much known about Lucius of, Lucius of Cyrene. 
but Manan, it says here, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch? Herod the Tetrarch was the Herod who was ruling that whole area during the time when Jesus was crucified. And like I said, there's a bunch of Herods. This just happened to be his slot. He's also called Herod Antipas. Uh, but he was, he was the puppet master, the, the, the puppet ruler when Jesus was crucified. And it says here that Manan was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. You know what that means? He grew up in Herod's household. He and, he and Herod were playmates growing up. So he was a highly influential, of noble birth. Uh, it wasn't exactly royalty because Herod wasn't... None of the Herod, even though they're occasionally referred to as kings, they're, they're none of them actually kings by birth or by right. They were just... A, they just happened to be really good friends with uh, whatever emperors there were. But so Manan, who you've never heard of before... Uh, is a powerful public economic political figure in his own right. And then, oh, wait, there's Saul. If you'd like to have that as your starting front five, one, two, three, four, your starting five uh, on a basketball team, in a, in a spiritual basketball team, that's pretty powerful. And they are the central leadership for this new church that started in Antioch, which is kind of like, let's all, now we can, let's all go our, our, our amazed face. I mean, that's amazing. That's incredible. But wait, there's more. So one day, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Now, ministering to the Lord, we could have a long conversation about all the things that this could mean. One of the things it definitely means is that they were in worship together. They were worshiping God together, whatever that felt like back then, for they were in the presence of God and honoring him and seeking to, to sur submit themselves to him and to receive from him. They were waiting on the Lord, and they had obviously been fasting as well. And then from out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit said to them, manifested, revealed to them in some way. It became clear to them that God was saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so they said, okay. When, when God reveals something to you, what are you supposed to do? Okay. Um, and so they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them. And sent them away. It doesn't say here where they sent them to. Uh, we'll find out in a few more verses. Uh, it, you don't get the impression here that God told them yet what the work was that he called them to do. He just said, I'm picking Barnabas and Saul, and I want you to pray for them and, and, and uh, send them out, set them apart, dedicate them. So it's actually, at this part, set them apart just means to to lay your hands on them and say, we're dedicating you for the special purpose God's called you for. Boom. And so they did, and they sent them away. Um, a couple of things I want you to take away from this. If you really want to hear from God, 
not a better way than to be in worship, especially enhanced by fasting. We don't do enough. We don't do hardly any fasting. Uh, it's not, fasting, uh, you, know, you're, you kind of feel like you're fasting if you're like on a keto diet or something like that. Um, but that's, there are all sorts of different ways to fast. And we may be learning something about that pretty soon. There are all sorts of different ways to fast, but the whole point is it's for the Lord, it's with the Lord, it's in the context of being in the presence of the Lord, it's connected to worship, it's connected to uh, seeking God, and when those factors are all present, God can show up in ways that you might not have expected and show you things that you wouldn't have thought of on your own. In the, the Grand Shoals Faith Alliance, we're talking right now about having a night of... I'm going to add the fasting component to it because we weren't really talking about fasting, but we should be. But a night where we're just going to call all the pastors and anybody from all the churches in Grand Shoals to just come together to worship and intercede, get in the presence of God for... Uh, the city of Granite Shoals. And, and not, no, like, we're just going to worship till the glory comes down and then pray until we run out of our own thoughts so that the Holy Spirit can start to pray. You know what happens in a lot of prayer meetings? We'll say, okay, let's, we need to pray for the city. And we get together and we'll, and we'll just say, we got a checkbox list. I'll pray for the mayor, pray for the new city manager. Pray for the city council. Pray for the city staff. Pray for all the churches. Pray for the teachers. Okay, we got, we got all the boxes checked? Okay, in Jesus' name, amen. And then everybody goes home. Um, not saying that those are bad prayers, but it's just not enough. You, what we're talking about here is praying until God shows up and you start to hear from God what he wants you to pray about. Remember what we're trying to learn? We pray the prayer that starts with God. Please show me what you want me to ask you for instead of praying our checkboxes. So when you pray those kind of prayers and you surrender to the Lord, God shows you things that you wouldn't have expected to hear because you weren't listening. Most checkbox prayers are involved in doing what? Telling God what you want him to do. When you're fasting and ministering to the Lord, you are basically saying, God, please Reveal yourself to me in what you are going to do. Big difference. So that's what they were doing. And they heard from God. They set them apart. And then they just sent them away. It's like, okay, we set you apart. Run along now. Do whatever it is that God shows you to do. <laughs> so they ended, we'll find out later that they ended up in Cyprus. Um, because that's where Barnabas is from. Um, but... We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but there's something else on the, on the macro scale, which means like the really, the really big, wow, something important just really happened here. Did anybody notice it scale? That changed the history of the church forever. Thing one, this was, this became the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. <clears throat> the first time that people were sent out 
specifically to minister to Jews and Gentiles uh, on a global scale. Everything else had been here and there around Jerusalem, uh, around um, Israel. They'd gone to Samaria, and they'd ended up in Antioch. But it was very localized. It was a very localized uh, meeting and uh, ministry. And now it's boom. It's, it's jumped uh, a whole magnitude larger. Uh, if, this, if this hadn't happened, the church would not have grown. The church would have stayed just a little podunk Jerusalem religion. Uh, but um, the other thing um, is that this was also a moment when there was a paradigm shift in the thinking of the church. The paradigm shift being this. Up until this moment, all the Christians in the world had been taking their instructions, their directions, and submitting their authority to the church at Jerusalem. And suddenly, the center of Christianity shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. And for the next several hundred years, uh, the center of, of power and influence and, and the church stayed in Antioch. And nobody held up their hands and said, wait, shouldn't we check with James, brother of Jesus, and see if we should be sending people out? Uh, do, do we have the authority to do this? Uh, who's in charge here? Um, do we need to run this by anybody? I mean, we're just little podunk people in Antioch and all the important stuff. I mean, Jesus, his ministry was in Jerusalem and he was crucified in Jerusalem and he rose from the dead in Jerusalem and, and we're just way out here on the, in the boondocks in Antioch and um, we don't have any of the, the real head honchos from Jerusalem involved on this. Is it, could we be, should we be doing this? Um, Holy Spirit said to do it. They did it. If they, had stay, if they had held on to their buggy whips, the church would not have... I don't know what would happen to the church. But they didn't... Here's the good news. They did not have buggy whip faith. I have no idea what that means, but they didn't have it. Um, they... They... Uh, they just submitted themselves to the Holy Spirit. They heard from the Holy Spirit. They obeyed the Holy Spirit. And it changed the whole face of Christianity. Now, I have an, another picture I want to show you. Cause this, and this is a cool picture. I want you to know, I, I spend a lot of time looking for the coolest pictures that I can show you in order to help you get a context that you can remember when you go home. Um, there you go. That's... What are, what are we looking at here? Wine skins. These are wine skins. They're not, yes, I think, well, some of them are figured. Uh, left one looks like it's filled up. I'm not actually sure that this one has been finished yet. I'm not sure it's stitched together yet. Uh, and these are Spanish. There's, there's, you'll be thrilled to know this. There are actually 17 craftsmen left in Spain who make handmade wineskins 
from goat skins. Goat skins. Uh, you can get all sorts of wine skins these days made out of synthetic materials, <laughs> but these are actually. I, I cannot tell you, unfortunately, that no actual goats were harmed in the. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So, and and you know, wineskins uh, from time immemorial have just been. Uh, wineskins were really, really important because if you didn't have wine, you were you didn't have anything back in those days because you couldn't always be sure that the, that water was good to, was safe to drink. So you you drank wine, not necessarily uh, super strong wine. Um, but it was the only way to, to get safe liquids sometimes. And so there's two, two ways to store wine. Way number one, humongous jars. Uh, and, and the only other way, and which are not particularly portable, because they're all made out of stone. Yeah, sometimes clay, but... Uh, so, so the other, uh, so the other way was in wineskins because if you're going to go on a journey and um, you needed to take it with you, that's the only way to do it. Um, which brings up the, this is the parable of Jesus, and he's beginning to teach them about the kingdom of God, and he says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will, be, will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. New wine has to be put into fresh wine skins. Because, so after you smush the, the, the grapes up, they start to ferment immediately and you can put them in the jars and, and, get, and control most of those gases this way, but if, but if, if you're in a hurry and you, you've got to get on the road... You, you put them in a new wineskin and the, the wineskin expands as the, as the gases from the fermentation process are released. But you can only do that one time because once the wineskin has, once the skins have stretched as much as they can stretch, if you then put more wine in there, um, it... Um, it you know, well, you probably could fill it half full and have half as much wine. Um, and, and that might be a, a good way to do it. Uh, but the point is, if you, want, if you want to get the full use, um, you have to just start with new wineskins. Penny and I were talking about this last night. Um, there, She's, she's in, a, in a buggy whip church. Um, and these people love the way church was done 50 years ago. And it worked 50 years ago. Um, and, you, and churches all across America were booming 50 years ago, 60 years ago. You know, the greatest generation came home. Churches exploded. Um, and there are lots of sociological reasons and a lot of spiritual reasons from that. But the ways that, that churches in America grew back then don't really work anymore. 
Um, back in those days, everybody was either raised in church or knew that they were supposed to go to church. And honestly, all you had to do was invite your neighbors to come with you to church, and unless you offended them, they you know, they came and uh, and they and they they stayed long enough, and then Jesus started to work on their lives, and and they stayed. Uh, and that me- that method doesn't work anymore because we're dealing with several generations now of pe- people who were not raised in church, or who've had bad experiences with church. Uh, who may or may not even believe in God, but they don't believe in going to church. Um, so you can't, you can't rely on that old method anymore because it doesn't work. You've got to have uh, a different approach. Turns out that the best approach is to go back to the book of Acts and do it the way they did it in the book of Acts. There weren't any churches to invite people to in the book of Acts. People were just spreading out, telling their stories of their experience with Jesus. And then as people started responding and just all started showing up at Paul's house or Barnabas's house saying, what do we do? Then they had to start building churches as a way to, to systematically begin to teach them and connect them with ministries. But it's, it didn't start with somebody building a church and saying... Now I've built it and they will come. Uh, The the new paradigm now is really the old paradigm, which which has always worked. It's it's never that the old old paradigm stopped working. It's never that having an experience with Jesus and going and telling other people about your story and letting the Holy Spirit show it. It's never that that stopped working. It's just that building buildings uh, and having people come to the building was a lot easier. And then the Holy Spirit would show up and okay. But that's not working anymore. Buggy whip churches are dying. Uh, Faster than you can even count them. Buggy whip churches are dying. The only churches that are really growing are churches where people have somehow been connected to the Holy Spirit in a life-changing way and then they're, they're just showing up. So here's the interesting thing. that Jesus says, we've got... New wine, we've got, a, we've got a new approach here. The old way's not working anymore, but here's the problem. Um, no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. Old is good enough. What you have is a lot of people who are just saying, I don't, don't want to try anything new. I'm comfortable with the old wine. I'm comfortable with the old way. Um, it's always worked for me. And thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to... Please don't make me learn anything new. Please don't let me try anything new. Um, It worked 50 years ago. We just have to do better and try harder. We just have to do a better job of doing the things that worked 50 years ago, and then it'll all all be fixed. Um, we, We need to take a few steps farther back and do the things that worked 2,000 years ago. Connect people with Jesus. Did it just die? I just, it just conked out, I don't know. I'm pretty much done. Then it conked out. So it's, it's not important. We can just, we can turn that off, Mike. Uh, and this one little verse 
that we, that we looked at today. We saw the church move from buggy whips to something new, a new leadership plan, a new leadership strategy, a new le- leadership uh, location. Because people were listening to the Holy Spirit. They were seeking God. They heard from God. They did what he said. Ministering to the Lord and fasting is a great way to get new wine. And if the old wine isn't working anymore, uh, if you've got a lot of buggy whips piled up in your life uh, and they're not working anymore, uh, maybe time for some new wine. Uh, You only get it one place, ministering to the Lord, fasting, seeking him, and waiting for him to show up and then do what he says. Even if the guys in Jerusalem may or may not have been okay with it, um, you do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. Okay? Let's bow our heads. Now, um, I don't know if you're having any bogey, any, any buggy whip moments right now in your own life where you've been holding on too long to old things because they're comfortable or just because they've always worked and, and you, you are uncomfortable trying new things. Here's my question. Have you asked God? Have you asked God about it? Whatever the situation is, have you tried fasting? Have you tried just seeking Him? Have you tried ministering to Him? Have you tried waiting on Him? Um, Are you just doing what you've always done and, and the results just aren't what you need anymore? Lord, I thank you that we are totally filled, submerged in, surrounded by your Holy Spirit right here today. And God, I pray for each person here that you would show us what it is that we need to be asking you for in our own lives, for our church, for this community. And then just giving us the courage to surrender to you while you lead us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.